Let's pray. Uh, gracious Father, we thank you that uh, you speak to us uh, through your word. Uh, we pray you would do that this day by the power of your spirit, uh, that you would help me to explain your word uh, faithfully and clearly and in a way uh, that uh, engages our hearts and minds. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, now, perhaps uh, some of you here know that I uh, used to be a trumpet player before I was a pastor. Uh, not, you know, sort of semi-professionally, I suppose. Uh, and one of the things I did as a trumpet player was I used to play in a whole lot of different musicals. Uh, and uh, as if you've been to a musical before, it doesn't always happen, but, but typically when you go to a musical, uh, the orchestra that's down in the pit, uh, before the curtains are actually drawn, uh, they'll play what's called the overture. Uh, the purpose of the overture being to introduce to the audience all the different musical themes uh, that they are going to hear throughout the rest of the show. And, and I mention that because this passage that John just read is a bit like the overture to the Gospel of John, like John's take on who Jesus is, what it means uh, to follow him. Uh, and so being the overture, the purpose of, of this whole passage is to introduce all the different themes uh, that are going to come up throughout the rest of John's Gospel. Uh, but all those themes really are tied together uh, around one central purpose. Uh, John tells us what that purpose is. Right? It's pretty convenient. You know, you're, you're reading the gospel, and right at the end of his gospel, uh, if you've got a Bible, you can flick to it. I'm going to read the verses, but in, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this. Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Uh, but these are written that, right, in order that, for the purpose that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right, so that's, it. that's John's purpose for his whole gospel. Right? That's what he wants to achieve in your life and in my life. Uh, that's what he wants to achieve through today's passage. It's that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and find true life in his name. So maybe it's a bit ambitious of me, but that's my purpose today. Right? That all of us might see Jesus as he really is, as the Messiah, whether that is God's chosen king, uh, that we might see him as the glorious son of God, sent from God the Father, uh, and that we might find life, true life, lasting life, eternal life uh, through knowing him. Now, uh, we're actually going to spend two weeks on this passage. Uh, verses 1 to 13 we'll look at today, which is why those are the verses uh, in your little Connect card. Uh, and verses 14 to 18, if you want to come back for part two uh, on December the 23rd, um, we'll be looking at those verses. Uh, you might uh, be interested to know there's a little outline of what I'm going to say uh, in the middle of that Connect card. Uh, and you can see there there are three main things I want us to see in, the pa in this passage. The first, in verses 1 to 4, uh, is that I want us to see just how glorious... Christ is. Right? This is John's uh, description of who Christ is. He says, Christ is glorious and he's worthy of our worship. Uh, look at the start of verse 1. Verse 1, that, that's just what, uh, verse 1 by verse 1, I just made, it's really the first sentence. Uh, John says, in the beginning was the Word. Now, that's, that's an interesting expression. We don't intend to use that word, that, that describe things in that way. But, but we know from down in verse 14, which you guys don't have on your connect card, but if you've got a Bible, down in verse 14, uh, John says that the Word became flesh. Uh, so this, this Word is Christ. It's Jesus. So the Word becoming flesh is John's way of describing Jesus' birth, which we're remembering at this time of Christmas. So why is it that John uses this word, word, when he's describing Christ? Why doesn't he just say Christ? 
Well, what's he trying to tell us about who Christ is by using this word, word? And to answer that question, we've really got to go back to the Old Testament. Uh, because uh, throughout the Old Testament, we see all sorts of things about God's word. And that, that's what John's drawing on when he uses this word, word. Uh, for, for example, uh, in the Old Testament, we see that God reveals himself by his word. Uh, so that, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 11 uh, to 13, uh, this is what Moses says. He's describing something that happened in the past. He says, uh, You came near to the mountain and stood at the foot uh, while it blazed with fire to the very heavens. Right? He's talking about a kind of an appearance of God's presence on Mount Sinai. Uh, with black clouds and deep darkness, he says. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of war words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. Right? This is a big theme in the Bible. Right, God, uh, the, the, the God of the Bible, is the God who reveals himself in his words. He reveals himself by speaking. Hence, that's how we reveal ourselves to one another. Right? We reveal our, I reveal myself to you by my words. In the end, if you want to get to know me, you have to listen to my words. If I want to get to know you, I have to listen to your words. That's the means by which we reveal who we are. And the God of the Bible is no different. So, so, uh, in, and that is really significant because in a world where lots of people don't even, uh, aren't even sure whether God exists and they're certainly not sure whether they can actually know God, uh, John is saying that Christ is the word from God. He's saying Christ is the, the definitive revelation of who God is. It's a radical claim. If you want to know God, you must know Christ. That's what John's saying. So Christ, as the Word of God, He reveals God. That's the first thing. Uh, second, Christ, as the Word of God, creates everything. If you remember the very start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, uh, God creates the heaven and, heavens and the earth by the power of His Word. He speaks and they exist. So, so Psalm 33 verse 6 uh, says, By the Word of the Lord the heavens were made. And, and, the, and their starry host by the breath of his mouth. In verse 9, uh, For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Uh, so Christ, as the word of God, creates everything. The creator of all things, which John makes really clear. If you look in sentence 3 there, he says, uh, Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Big claims for Jesus. He's the creator of all things, John says. And so it follows that he's also the source of all life, which is what verse 4 is about. In him was life, John says. And that life was the light of all mankind. And notice that connection between light and life. Light and life, that's always the case. Light and life always go together. I referenced Genesis 1 before. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates all sorts of life. If you've read it before, there are birds, plants, animals, uh, human beings, all sorts of life. Uh, but of course, what does he start with? He starts with light. Let there be light, God says. Because you can't have life without light. In fact, previously I've spoken on, on this kind of idea, and when I did that, I googled the question, uh, what would happen to life on earth if the light of our sun was just to go out? What would life on earth look like? 
And I came across this article on, on a website called Popular Science. I, I think it's legit, right? Uh, it seems legit. I kind of cross-checked it with some other things. But Popular Science. And it said the first thing that would happen if our sun was to go out uh, would be that within a year, the average temperature on Earth would be minus 73 degrees. And within 10 years, it would be minus 240 degrees. As you can imagine, that would be pretty hard for much life to survive. Uh, of course, if the sun went out, the whole process of photosynthesis would stop. Most plants would be dead within a week. Uh, animals that depended on those plants would have died. Uh, even the largest trees would last just a few years. Uh, and of course, we too would uh, ha uh, die unless we could work out some way of building really massive submarines that could get down to the depths of the ocean. Uh, maybe it would be warm enough uh, down there. If there wasn't any sun on earth, any light, life as we know it just wouldn't be possible. Light and life always go together. Always. Uh, but the thing is, as powerful as our sun is, as glorious as our sun is, it actually is dying. I mean, scientists here know more about this than me. But our sun actually will go out eventually. It might take another five billion years or so, probably not in my time, but it, it, will actually, it is actually dying. Right, so, so what's going to give human beings light and life forever? That's the Christian promise, eternal life. What's going to give human beings light and life once our sun disappears? A and the answer is, it's the light that existed before the sun. It's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed it before, but in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God says, let there be light. He creates light. Uh, but the sun isn't created until verse 14. So what's this light that existed uh, before the sun? Well, we've got to go to the, uh, the very other end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Uh, there we see that God's creating a completely new creation, a new heavens and new earth. Uh, and once again, there's no sun. Revelation 21, verse 23. Where does all the light uh, and life come from in this new heavens and new earth? Revelation 21, verse 23. This heavenly city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Right, so th this new creation has no need for our sun. No need. Because the light of God's glory, the light of the Lamb's glory, the Lamb there is another way of speaking about Christ. Right, so the very pr glorious presence of Christ brings light and life to everyone and everything. Christ, the Word of God, is the ultimate source of all light and life. That's what John's saying. Christ created the sun. Uh, he put the sun in its place. He controls the, the, he controls the movements of the sun. And when he's done with the sun, when his glory fills the earth, there'll be no need for the sun. That's how glorious Christ is. So Christ, the Word of God, reveals God. He, he creates all things. He's the source of all light and life. And not only that, he's the only one who's able to save. Why do I say that? Because throughout the Old Testament, it's only God's Word that's able to bridge the gap between heaven and earth. But it's God's word uh, that is able to rescue people from spiritual darkness and death and bring them into God's glorious light and life. I'll give you one example. Isaiah 55 verse 10 uh, says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven 
and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish uh, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, God says, that goes out from my mouth. My word will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So, God says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. So this is a picture of God says, this is what I'm going to achieve through my word. And of course, the ultimate fulfillment of God's word, John is saying, is Christ. Christ is the word of God. Christ is the Word of God uh, who was sent by His Father from heaven to earth, just like the sun, just like the rain falls to the earth, just like the snow comes to the earth. Christ came from heaven to earth to achieve God's purposes in His world, and His purpose is to save. Notice the language, if you've got Isaiah 55 open, uh, the language there is to lead people out to rescue them, to save them, to deliver them from darkness, spiritual darkness and death, uh, so that they would have the joy of being in God's glorious light and life. And that's all achieved through God's Word. Christ is glorious. Uh, He's the personal revelation of God, the creator of all things, the source of all light and life, the saviour of the world. Uh, And there's more. When I say he's the personal revelation of God, because look at what John says. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. With God. Now, maybe this isn't rocket science, but every time that word with is used in the New Testament, it's used to describe one person being with another person. That's how it's always used. One person being in some sort of personal relationship with another person. And that's important to know because the Greeks in John's day also used this word, but they thought of the word as being this kind of impersonal force that held all of creation together. That was their concept of the word. John says, no. John says the word is a person, a person who's always been with God, a person who's related to God, who's enjoyed God. This person is Christ, right? who before he became flesh uh, was God the Son. And he enjoyed relationship with his Father. Uh, I say the eternal Son of God because look at what John says. He says, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning. If you're a Jewish person reading that, who is John's main audience, uh, you would have automatically gone back to Genesis 1 where it says, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. But look closely at what John says. Look at the first sentence. Uh, In the beginning was the Word. He's saying Christ already was. Christ existed before the world was created. It's interesting. Mark starts his gospel by saying the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you read Mark's Gospel, you know that the the first event that Mark records is Jesus' baptism. Luke's Gospel goes back a bit further than that. It says Jesus' beginning is to be found in his birth. Lots of birth narrative stuff in uh, in Luke's Gospel. Uh, And Matthew goes back even further. Matthew says uh, Jesus' beginning is to be found uh, in his descendants, 
a genealogy going all the way back to Abraham. Right, and it's not that John doubts any of that. He, he agrees with all that. Uh, but here he says, if you want to know uh, where Christ's true beginning is, uh, you shouldn't just go back to his baptism or his birth or even right back through his family tree to all his descendants. You have to go back to before the beginning of time, John says. Uh, because really, Christ has no beginning. He's the eternal Son of God uh, who was always with his Father. Now, this is pretty deep waters, right? I get this, we're going in deep, but this is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. It's what Christians believe. We believe in one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And that's why John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Was God. You know, it's, it's not enough to, to believe that Jesus is a social, uh, was a kind of great social activist or a religious martyr or a, a wise teacher or a prophet sent from God or, or even someone who had some divine-like qualities. Oh, those are all okay things to believe about Jesus, but it's not enough. Christ is God, John says. God himself in human form. More about that on the 23rd. Uh, so in just these four verses, what have we seen about who Christ is? We've seen that he's eternal, uh, that he's personal, that he's like the, the definitive revelation of God. He's the creator of all things, the source of all light and life. He's the son of God sent by the Father from heaven to earth to save the world by laying down his life for our sins. And so Christ, as God, is worthy of our worship. There are lots of people in the world who worship the sun in one way or another. Christ put the sun in its place. Christ is the light, the glorious light that existed before the sun and will exist after the sun. Christ is worthy of our worship. And you might say, but I don't worship anyone. I'm not religious. I don't worship anything, right? Uh, but the uh, American novelist, uh, who's not a Christian, David Foster Wallace, I really like this quote, he said, uh, Here's something weird but true. Uh, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism, because there's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. Uh, the only choice we get is what we worship. What are you hear what he's saying? He's saying, don't kid yourself. Everybody worships, right? It's kind, of, it's kind of built in to our DNA. Uh, at this time of year, uh, in the, as, um, not so much today perhaps, but like, uh, as we come out of kind of a cold, uh, darker winter period, and you start to have those first uh, glimmers of summer uh, sunshine, uh, I think we all get this sense uh, that we're, we're reminded that physically speaking, we were created to really live and thrive and flourish in the glorious light of the sun. We need that. We need the sun. We kind of lap up the light of the sun. We love it. We delight in it. And so also, spiritually speaking, we were created to live and, and, and truly flourish in the light of the ultimate sun, the sun that was sent from the Father, that we remember each Christmas, right? That the even greater sun, we were created to bask in His glory, to delight in Him, to love Him, to worship Him. Christ is glorious and he's worthy of our worship. 
Of course, the problem is that we don't give Christ the worship he deserves. Uh, that's what verses 5 to 11 are about. I'm going to be much briefer on the second and third points, if don't panic. So, uh, verses 5 to 11, they're, they're really uh, I've it about the grievousness of our sin. But looking in verse 5, John says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as some of you might see that there's a little footnote there on that verse, uh, which says that this could be translated uh, as understood rather than overcome. Right? Translators go either way on that. Uh, and I, yep, uh, but I reckon understood is better here because I think this whole section, verses 5 to 11, uh, is about humanity's consistent failure to understand who Christ is. Our consistent rejection of Him. So even though the light of Christ's glory shines into our world, we just don't get it. We don't understand it. Uh, so by and large, we stay in spiritual darkness. We reject Christ. And John makes it clear that we do that despite there being lots of evidence. Notice all the, the courtroom language in verses 6 to 8. Look at those verses. He says, uh, there was a man uh, sent from God whose name was John. And just to clarify, that's John the Baptist, right? Not John who's writing the gospel, Right, but John the Baptist, who came before Jesus. Uh, so in verse 7, uh, he says, John, this John, John the Baptist, uh, came as a witness, courtroom language, to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. Uh, this language of witness and testimony is all through John's gospel. His point is that, that through the testimony of people like John the Baptist and all these other witnesses, we've got all the evidence we could possibly believe, uh, need to believe in Christ, to follow him, to find life in his name, and yet we still reject him. And he says the same thing. He reiterates it in verses 9 and 10. Look in verses 9 and 10. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Uh, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him... The world did not recognize him. And now the world in John's gospel uh, is almost never the physical world, like the creation. About the only time is here in verse 10, where he says, though the world was made through Christ. Right? That, that is the physical world. Right? But aside from that, uh, the world in John's gospel almost always refers to, to sinful uh, humanity as a whole who are rejecting Christ. Right? And that's what we have here, isn't it? John's saying, even though the world was made through Christ, it doesn't recognize Christ. By and large, people reject Jesus. They reject him rather than receive him. Why is that? If Christ is so glorious, if he's exactly what we need, why is that? Well, if you've got a Bible, maybe flick over to John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I think John gives us uh, the answer. John 3, 19 and 20. Uh, this is the verdict, John says. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will uh, not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Uh, now, when I was uh, a little kid, I was like lots of children. Uh, I was a bit afraid of the dark, uh, but when the light came on, I was fine. Right? That's what most kids are like. Some adults are like that. Right? It's scared of the dark, fine in the light. 
But here John says uh, that with the light of Christ, it's the opposite. You see, we like the darkness. We're okay with that, but we're scared of the light of Christ. The light of Christ is not comforting. We're afraid of it. We're afraid. Why? Because we don't want to be exposed. And that wasn't always the case, right? Way back in the the start of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve happily lived in the light of God's presence. No fear at all. The fear didn't start until Genesis 3, right? Then Adam and Eve were afraid, jumping into the bushes, right? Trying to hide from God. Uh, and, And the reason they were afraid is because they decided that their life would be so much better if only they were in control. If they were their own boss and king and, and master. And that's what we all do. Ever since Adam and Eve, we reject God's rule because we want to be in charge of our own lives. Uh, of course, the problem with that is that we're not very good at being in charge of our own lives. Isn't that the problem? I mean, we're good at, like, if you think about your own life, even as you sit here, there, there, I'm sure there are parts of your life that you're very competent You've got, the, you, you've got that in control. And then there are other parts where you just feel like there's a damn wall and, and you're kind of poking your fingers in all over the place. It could fall apart at any minute. Like We're just not that good at being in charge of our lives. We're, we're not qualified for that job. And deep down we know that. Right? Perhaps uh, some of you, one of you, uh, has accepted a job before uh, that you know that you're not really qualified for. I don't know if everyone's ever done that, but if you've done that, it's actually a quite a scary place to be in But because uh, you've always got this underlying fear that you're going to be exposed, that someone's going to find out that you're just faking it, right? And of course, that fear only gets worse if someone who actually is qualified turns up in your workplace. Right? The, the, the closer that person gets, the more and more afraid you are of being exposed. And it's a bit like that with Christ. Because who is Christ? Christ is the Messiah. Christ is God's promised King, the one who actually is qualified to be in charge, not just of your life, but of all things. He's got things perfectly under control. Uh, So when Christ draws near to you, to us, we're afraid. We're afraid that he'll expose our sinful desire to be in charge of our own lives, even though we're hopelessly underqualified to do that. So by and large, we reject the light of Christ for fear of being exposed. We prefer our darkness. Even Jesus' own people did that. Look in verse 11, John says, Christ came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Right? That's the Jewish people John's talking about. Uh, the people that, that God chose, who he made promises to, who he brought out of Egypt, who he brought into the promised land. who uh, they, they had the temple, they had the priesthood, they had all these sacrifices, they, they had the whole Old Testament. And John says even those people rejected Christ. That's, that's quite confronting. Right? It means that, that you can be a very, very good person a very moral person, a very religious person, a person who knows your Bible extremely well. You can be all of those things and still reject Christ. And perhaps you're thinking, well, so what if I reject Christ? You know, I'm I'm better than most people. Sure, I'm not perfect, but what's the big deal? You know, stop being so intense. 
just came to the church for the mainly music thing, you know? And you know, like, I guess if I am being a bit tense, it's because I actually believe this. It's not just a kind of Sunday afternoon fad for me. I actually I am convinced that if you reject Christ, you really are rejecting the source of all life. And, and so all that's left for you, really, both now and forever, is spiritual darkness and death. I don't want that for you. So let me encourage you that if even today you feel that Christ's light is exposing your darkness just a bit, let me encourage you not to hide from Christ. As scary as it is to come into his light, it's far better to be exposed now than later. Far better to feel exposed at the point where you can actually receive his gracious salvation which is where verses 12 and 13 land. This idea that salvation is gracious. Look in verse 12. Yet, right, that's an important yet. By and large people reject Christ, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, notice the language of receive. Right? This time of year we talk lots about receiving. Uh, most of us are probably going to receive at least one gift. If you're not going to get one, come and talk to me. I'll buy you a gift, right? Uh, so most of us are probably going to get at least one gift. Uh, they're not, it's not something that we've earned. It's not something we deserve. Uh, it's something we just have to receive. And John says that is the heart of Christianity. And for some of you, you, you probably have never thought about Christianity in that way. But because uh, a lot of people think Christianity is more about climbing a ladder. You see, rather than receiving a gift. It's kind of a never-ending ladder that you have to climb uh, to try and be good enough for God. If I can just obey these commands and and say these prayers and give to these people and uh, and serve in this volunteer kind of ministry thing, then maybe one day I just might be good enough for God. If I've climbed enough rungs, you see. But here John's saying that that is not what Christianity is about. It's not about climbing a ladder up to God, because in Christ, God has already come down to us. Don't waste your time with the ladder. Just receive the gift. Receive Christ. And John says we can do that by believing in his name. Jesus' name there is not just a title. right? It's like the essence of who he is and what he offers us. It really goes back to John's purpose for his gospel. He wants us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's promised king, his chosen king, who's come to establish the the, uh, wonderful goodness of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is the glorious son of God sent by his father to lay down his life for our sins. Uh, There's a song we sing here at church. Uh, in Christ alone, my hope is found. I can't remember. I always get the verses muddled up. But there's that line that says, uh, Light of the world by darkness slain. You see, Christ's light as the light of the world comes into the world. But we hate him exposing us so much that he ends up laying down his life, being slain for our sins. John says, if we believe those things about Jesus, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, that we'll have the incredible privilege of being loved children of God. Precious children. The kids up here earlier, that they're precious, aren't they? Like Even if you're not their parents, you probably love them. You think, oh, they're precious. But John says that's the kind of relationship that you have with God. A child of God. 
loved, a dearly loved child, a child who's found life in Christ's name. And if you look at verse 13, John is really driving home that this is a gift. These children of God, John says, are not born of natural descent. Right? You can't be a child of God just because you were born into a particular family. You say, oh, I don't go to church, but you know, my grandparents did. Surely that counts for something. Well, it's nice, but not really. Like you don't be a child of God by natural descent. Our children of God aren't born of human decision, which is literally uh, the, the will of the flesh. Uh, so essentially John's saying that you don't become a child of God because of the sexual desire of your parents. So I probably, sorry to put that in your image in your brain, right? But you might have become your parents' child because of their sexual desire, but you can't become God's child because of sexual desire. Right, and so these children aren't of the husband's will, which really, in this culture, just flows on from sexual desire because typically husbands took the lead. It was their will that kind of dominated in the bedroom. And so John's saying becoming a child of God has absolutely nothing to do with who you are or what you've done. Nothing. It's not a ladder to climb at all. It's a gift to receive. And my prayer this Christmas is that you would receive that gift. Uh, maybe you've received it already. Maybe you, you want to receive it afresh. Be thankful to God for it. And maybe you need to receive it for the first time this day. Maybe uh, as God opens your eyes to see just how glorious Christ is, uh, to, just, to see just how grievous your sin is, that it separates you from Christ, the source of all light and life, uh, and to see just how incredibly gracious God's salvation is. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. And uh, I pray this day uh, that you would indeed open our eyes to see uh, just how glorious Christ is. And as we see him in all his glory, uh, that we might be honest about who we are. Uh, that there are many parts of our lives that are not glorious. Uh, that separate us from him, the source of all life. And so we pray, Father, that we would confess our sins to you and that we would embrace uh, afresh or perhaps for the first time your great, uh, amazing grace to us, that we can be your dearly loved children uh, simply through believing in the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.